0: Lou, Lou Eisen, boxing historian and writer. And we have a very special guest today. We have Mark Cram Jr. And we're gonna discuss his wonderful book on Joe Frazier, which is a must have for any serious boxing fan. And Frazier was an incredible person. Uh, Mark Cram Jr. is the author of Like Any Normal Day, A Story of Devotion, which was awarded the 2013 uh, Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. Uh, formerly a senior writer for the Philadelphia Daily News, which is one of the newspapers on the planet. He was recipient of the 210 Sigma Delta High Award for feature writing. His work has appeared numerous times in American sports writing. He's also contributed articles to Philadelphia Magazine and the New York Times. He's the son of the late Mark Cram, a highly regarded writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of the controversial book and the rivalry between Muhammad Ali and Joel Frazier, Ghost of Manila. Mark Cram Jr. is our guest, magnificent writer, and it's absolutely a pre- pleasure and a privilege to have you on today. Welcome. I'm delighted to be with you, uh, Lou. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you uh, for being here. And I gotta tell you, uh, so I started to read the book this week. I mean, I've read it before. And I started to read a little bit again. I figure I'll read the first couple of chapters, and then I'll read the next couple of chapters, and then I'll read the next three or four chapters. <laughs> and then I'm reading the whole book again. You can't put it down, and uh, it's such a wonderful description of uh, it puts you inside Joe Frazier's heart and mind. And you you knew
1: Frazier very well. I did. Uh... I came to know him well after his career. I I began writing uh, for the Philadelphia Daily News in in 1987, and it was after that, uh, during my tenure at the Daily News, that I got to know Joe fairly well, you know. Uh, uh, Starting a very difficult and interesting time in his life where he was sort of, uh, sort of, You know distancing himself from distancing himself from his career and that was not an easy process for joe you know uh i don't think he ever really formally retired to tell you the truth without an announcement he just sort of he uh he he, you know he so i got him to know got to know him during his post boxing career put it that way
0: yeah he he seemed to be drifting at some point that He was sort of lost. I mean, without boxing, it didn't really seem
1: he had a purpose or focus. Is that fair to say? It is. It is. And he had money troubles. Uh, He didn't handle his money terribly well. So he was always looking to turn a buck. Um, You know, uh, he had the gym up on North Broad Street. uh, And, you know, he had that more or less to get the kids off the street and sort of served the same role uh, for those kids that the police athletics served for him when he was coming up. Uh, but he was, uh, made a lot of appearances. Uh, he was beloved in Philadelphia. Uh, he was someone that the, uh, he, he Joe understood what it was, to, what it meant to be a champion in the city. And then he, you know, he, he had a certain stature, and uh, all sorts of people would flock to the gym. Uh, as far away as England, they would come, and uh, you know, want Joe to train him, to advise him, to manage his career. Uh, so Joe kept his hand in boxing as a as a trainer and manager, uh, but uh, with limited success, I'd say.
0: What what happened to
1: the money? Did he just did he did he misspend it? Did people rip him off? um he spent it you know he spent it uh there were some some bad investments and um some investments in which the uh were, were not done in an orderly fashion um he um you know he came out of the uh, an impoverished uh, childhood in beaufort south carolina and to to degree there's the the culture of poverty was in play for joe in the sense that what that is is that if you grow up in extreme circumstances and you come into a lot of money the feeling is that there's you know your whole life you're not planning for tomorrow you're you're just living for today and i think joe fit that fit that description rather well you know uh uh, you know, Joe liked to let the good times roll and, uh, uh, you know, they rolled him into bankruptcy, bur- <laughs> you know, more or less.
0: Yeah. There, I mean, that applies to so many athletes, not just boxing. And I, I remember reading an article in Sports Illustrated, Mark, about, uh, Rocket Ishmael who played up here yeah. in Canada before he went to the States and he was broke. And, mm. uh, there was a lawyer, I think in Dallas who essentially formed a company for for athletes he said he The lawyers said i'm already wealthy i don't need the money but he wanted to help them so when people would come to different athletes ask for money whether it was their relatives or friends he would say you got to give me an outline financial plan of what you want to spend to every cent right need to pay it back and it has to be done by a bank manager
1: or an accountant right well it's because- interesting you know if you look a generation later uh how well Sugar Ray Leonard handled his affairs uh you know uh and he had uh, a very sharp guy by the name of Mike Trainer uh handling his contracts his negotiations and uh he was a very uh, uh he was a guy that had a lot of uh integrity shall we say mm-hmm. and um so it was a whole different thing you know uh, uh but joe it was catch as catch can you know he made a lot of money uh but when you make a lot of money and you come in from that environment everybody's lining up to get with their hand out in one way or another right and joe joe was basically a generous guy he was he had he was a big-hearted guy uh uh you know like ali in that respect if they were fundamentally soft touches, basically. Uh, Ali gave away money that people had never were were never would never be aware of, and so did Joe. Um, you know, they were. Uh, that was how they were. You know, that's one of the most beautiful stories
0: in your book about the person he saw. I think it was in the wheelchair.
1: The right.
0: Person, I mean, that was such a. I mean, it was a really emotional story. How he picked this stranger up and took him home
1: and got him stuff and gave him money. and Yeah, he was uh, driving to Atlantic City. We had uh, his son, Hector, and another fighter uh, by the name of Kevin Dublin in the back of his limo. And they were coming down Broad Street and they see a, a, a legless man wheeling himself across the street, Broad Street, with a can of kerosene in his lap. And uh, Joe pulled over, he's got a uh, a long uh, uh, fur coat on, white fur coat and a cowboy hat, you know, and uh, he was, um, he, he picks the guy up and puts him in the car. The fighters put the wheelchair in the trunk and they drive to this man's house, which is a narrow street in North Philadelphia. And it's got, uh, uh it looks like an abandoned, vacant house. It's got uh, windows are covered with uh, with quilts and and uh, very bare surroundings. And so Joe takes him inside, and you know he uh, he pulls out a roll of bills from his sock. He called it the love. He said, "You look like you could use some love," which is what Joe called money, and peeled off a couple hundred for him. Wow! Gives him some autograph pictures, and. You know, Kevin Dublin told me that on the ride to Atlantic City, Joe was uh, mysteriously quiet. He, he usually was kind of a chatterbox, you know, driving, but he was quiet. He was, and you could see there was a tear in his eye. He was thinking about this. And, you know, and they could could of, you know, we don't know what he was thinking about, but you could say, well, you know, he was, he had told the boys in the back, he said, see, that was a man and he was trying to show these kids who were, who were kind of wayward kids at the time, you know, very much uh, uh, involved with, uh, you know, getting in street fights and drugs and all that sort of thing, theft, uh, that, you know, that's what it was to be a man, taking kerosene to heat your house for his family. So was it was Joe thinking about that when he was tearing up, or was he thinking about his father who had one arm? He was uh, his father's arm was shot off when Joe when Joe's mother was carrying him in the womb. Wow! And and uh, there was a there was a fracas, and uh, you know Joe's father was a bootlegger, and there was a fracas over uh, uh, one thing or another at a party. And the guy pulled out a shotgun and shot the shot Joe's father's hand off. So was he thinking about that? Was he thinking about how his own father and, and the struggles that he had? So there's there there were what I've tried to achieve with the book is uh, portray a multi-layered uh picture of Joe, you know, and, and draw in all that was going on around him, all the cultural and societal things, you know. Uh uh, not just with his his, uh, his uh, three fights with Ali, uh, right. but, you know, all of that was going on in the 60s and the 70s and and what have you. So a textured portrait of him is what I was aiming for.
0: We certainly achieved that. And, you know, just you get the feeling reading that, that he's thinking this is wrong and I can change this. This is fundamentally wrong in our society, which is so wealthy that a person has
1: to live like this. Yes, yes. He was, uh, as I say, he was a very kind-hearted man, and I wanted to come across on that. The book is by no means uh, a valentine to Joe. I mean, it's not, uh, that would be unfair to his memory to write, uh, you know, kind of a, hand him a bouquet of roses in this book, right uh however um i wanted to get across what a decent fundamentally decent and kind-hearted man he was and uh and he was that he he would he would see a driver stranded on the side of the road and he did this not once but any number of times say the person had a flat tire he would pull over and get out of his car and get the jack and and fix the tire he he said can you imagine that you're you're stranded on the on the on this on the highway and the heavyweight champion stops by to give you a hand well that's what he was you know he was uh and you know he would tell his his nephew or whoever was saying no no not we're we're not doing this again are we and he says that could be your mom out there your father
0: so joe
1: had a sense of uh decency about him that was that were really touching and uh you know there, there's something you said
0: that just struck a chord to me uh, uh george Chevallo loved him yeah they were best friends. and Chevallo was very very mentally distraught when joe passed away he was out in western canada giving this anti-drug tour
2: yeah
0: and he canceled it when he heard joe was sick and you know to get a flight from calgary directly to new york it's not easy but he did but he couldn't get there to the next morning and he just missed him oh. and and so joe you know or george was hospitalized for a bit because he was crushed i mean mm. he loved him and, and I, I had seen them at the hall of fame together hugging each other joe george always had a big hug and a kiss for joe right and they were like brothers they hung out and the first time i met joe was in I was doing stand-up comedy and it was a small town, 20 minutes outside of Toronto uh, in Pickering in a bar owned by a Canadian Football League player. And I said, when I walked in, that guy at the bar looks a lot like Joe Frazier. It is Joe Frazier. And I thought, oh my God, (laughs) what on earth is Joe Frazier doing here? And Mm -hmm. so I said, can I meet him? And he said, sure. And he had a cold look on his face, but I, I spoke to him and I said, what brings you here? And he said, why else would I be here? I'm here to see my brother, George. And, <laughs> and they, um, and I, I I, had known from people always asking Ali this and Ali. I didn't want to upset him. Right. So I just said to him, when you won the World Heavyweight title, did you, was the joy, did it hit you immediately? Or did it take you a week or two for it to really sink in? And he said, the joy of winning, and achieving your goal is incredible at that moment. But he said, it takes time for you to realize, wait a sec, I am
1: the champ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, people ask me where Joe fits in the pantheon of of great heavyweights. And, uh, you know, whether whether he's in the top five or the top 10, or, you know, everyone has their own way of judging these things. Uh, First of all, it's very hard to move fighters around in time. To say mm. that Gene Tunney and uh, Joe Lewis, uh, how they might have fared with with Ali and Frazier and that group, uh, but I tend to look at it at, at the did the fighter meet his greatest moment? You know, what did he produce in his greatest moment? And if you were to use that as a as a criteria, you'd have to say Joe was in the top three or four i would say uh because there there was no greater moment than the first ali frazier fight and although he lost the the third fight no one will deny that he was uh uh, that what a courageous performance it was in under dire 100 degree temperatures 15 rounds uh i don't know you know to me in my eyes and i know people will dispute it i've seen joe listed as nine ten some even say that he's you know not even in the top 20. god forbid that's ridiculous but my, but my view is that where is the uh where is what did the the fighter do what indelible moment did he produce you it, know it was-
0: Put on the surf to beat ali and he did his job but he also beat yeah. he did yeah. other great fighters you can't rate him anything under the top one or two i mean yeah you could put him in any era and he still wins there's no one you yeah. can say uh, other than george foreman and, and and he wasn't really focused on that fight you know or well uh, as trained as as well as he should have been but right there isn't, there isn't another fighter you could say would walk over him
1: just no. wouldn't,
0: just wouldn't happen
1: I think, for instance, he would, I think, for instance, he would have destroyed Tyson. Yeah, I think, absolutely. I think he would have utterly destroyed Tyson. I And, to ask and I know. hear Tyson, yeah, I, I you know, uh, with all due respect to Tyson, uh, I look at his record, and I look who he beat, uh, and uh, I just don't see it. I don't see uh, the greatness there. And I think if Tyson Tyson was, he's an honest man. I think if he were to to look at himself, I think he'd admit it. (laughs) You know, uh, he's a brand name for sure. Uh, And he had an interesting career. I think he's an interesting guy. I really do. I think he's a very interesting guy. But I I think that the notion that he's somewhere uh, comparable to the fighters from the the '60s, and I'm not talking about just Joe and and Ali. I'm talking about some of the other guys who were campaigning in the '60s. You know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, he's just List not Liston. Oh my gosh, Liston. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland uh, yeah, Cleveland Williams. Uh, you know, even that guy from Philly who no one remembers anymore, Leotis Martin, who was a very tough fighter. On. Yeah,
0: and Leotis Martin yeah. knocked out Liston.
1: Yeah, in his last fight. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Tyson wasn't better than Leotis Martin. All I'm saying is that those fighters in that era, I mean, to get out of that, to rise above those those caliber of fighters in your career, as Joe did, uh, and Ali did, it took some doing, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um. Tyson depended on intimidation, and as you know better than anyone on this planet, an
1: army couldn't intimidate Joe Frazier. Oh my gosh, no! Oh my gosh! He I mean, just laughed at him. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember Tyson fighting uh, Frank Bruno. Bruno, Bruno must have said the sign of a cross fifty times in his corner before he came out. It's just, you know, that's right. He intimidated guys. He was, he was, he was a quick fighter. But, you know, he was, uh, he could be offset as uh, Holyfield approved, you know, and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into a long Tyson thing, but I just bring him up to to sort of talk about where Joe fits in history. And uh, I think he fits in history more favorably than some might, might have it.
0: Where? where he came from in 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 South Carolina and Buford you were saying is it almost how do I put this unbelievable almost unimaginable that a person from that impoverished background could rise above his circumstances and the racism endemic in that area everywhere to achieve world status as
1: as an athlete I mean it's almost impossible (laughs) Well, I know that as a boy, he he hung a a burlap bag filled with corn cobs and rocks from a tree and used it as a heavy bag. And I know that he saw Joe Lewis pass through Buford doing an exhibition when Joe was still quite young. Um, So, and that, you know, he had this notion that he would be heavyweight champion one day. But if you add up everything together, he was not uh, what I would say uh, on the fast track <laughs> to Madison Square Garden. Right. Um, he uh, he got into some trouble. He was a poor student. He was truculent with his teachers. Uh, he got into some fights and some trouble. It was a very racist environment down in Buford, and his mother. Uh, well, you know, he became part of the migration se- north for many African-Americans at that time. And uh, he was sent to live with some relatives in New York, figuring that there was nothing for him in Buf- Buford, but there might well be something for him in New York. Well, he got there and couldn't really find a job, and he got involved uh, with uh, stealing cars. He'd steal cars and take them to the junk shop, chop shop, for, he'd get $50 a car. And you know, his relatives saw that he was uh, skirting danger, and uh, they sent him to um, to live with his sister in Philadelphia. Her name was Maisie, and um, uh, her and her husband. And she got he got down there, and Joe was. Maisie sat him down and said, "Look, Joe, if." called him billy his his nickname was billy because uh his father had called him that he said look billy if you um get into trouble there's nothing i can do to help you uh but if you go to the police athletic league and get to know the cops you'll you'll have uh you know uh it'll be to your advantage well you know joe wanted to do right he said sure he'd do it he was he was overweight, he was 30 pounds overweight, couldn't fit into any of his clothes, uh, he was out of shape. And um, so he went over to the gym and they started fooling around with a bag, heavy bag, and they soon saw that he had uh, a natural left hook, that he just had tremendous power in his left hook. And sort of that was the beginning, you know, he, he ended up getting a job uh, at a slaughterhouse in Philly to keep body and soul together and 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 trained. And the cops took good care of him. And, um, you know, the cop, one in particular ran the 23rd Pal, was a fellow by the name of Duke Dugent. And uh, through Duke, uh, Joe got to know Yank Durham, who used to come by the gym. And, you know, uh, next thing you know, he's uh, competing for the Olympics and winning the Olympics. So, how long was he
0: yeah how long was he boxing at the time he won the olympics
1: oh uh three or four years i guess
0: okay so quicker than foreman when foreman got into it
1: yeah i mean he He's not as quick as just say longer. yeah i mean he he got into the olympics because uh buster mathis who had beaten him in the trials him. buster had broken his hand or thumb or what have you and and so Joe was the replacement, and uh, you know he, he took advantage of it. You know, uh, won the gold medal, and when he came back to Philly, wanted to turn pro. Nobody would really make a deal for him. It wasn't like today, where you come back with the Olympic gold and you're you're lavished with all sorts of deals and riches and what have you. It was they didn't think he was tall enough, and uh, or at least at least the Cognizetti didn't think he was tall enough big enough that he'd have trouble as a heavyweight. And uh, it was only because his uh, uh, manager uh, with uh, Reverend Gray in North Philly, um, uh, who was a pastor, they got together some business leaders in Philadelphia to form Cloverlay, which was a they'd invest a certain amount of money and that would sort of keep Joe in training. And that's how it came to being. Uh, uh, his early career, uh, it really didn't take off until uh, Yank brought in Eddie Futch from the coast to uh, to pick fights for him and and to teach Joe. And of course, we all know Eddie was a- Genius. Was a, what, a, what is, what a credible teacher he was, you know?
0: Right, he's one of the greatest ever.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, no question. No question, and a good man, a really good man.
0: I I asked him at the Hall of Fame one year when Angelo introduced me, Angelo Dundee, and I asked him, did you ever regret stopping the third Frazier fight? And he grabbed my wrist, he said, son, I've seen seven men die in the ring. Yeah.
1: I wasn't gonna see another one. That's right. That's right, and Joe was helpless. Yeah, he couldn't see out of either eye. Yeah, you know? and you know, there's this myth around that uh, that Ali was going to quit on his stool, and some people that I uh, respect seem to uh, believe that. I don't believe it. I don't think that would have happened. I, I don't think I, Angelo would have let him quit in the, in the last round before the last round. Yeah, and They knew what kind of shape Joe was in.
0: When I s- spoke to Hugh McElvenny at the Hall of Fame in Canastota, he said, I was sitting less than three feet behind Ali's corner. I never saw, him, and I could hear everything. He said, he never said he was going to quit. No, said, of course. He said he didn't. was exhausted. He felt like death, but he never said, I'm not going out. No, no. it's it's uh,
1: that's, that's one of those urban legends that have passed down that there seem to be so many of them these days, but there was no chance that that was going to happen and you know Futch did the right thing you know um Save what's interesting thing. about what's interesting is the postscript there uh ali didn't want to come down and see the press or didn't want to entertain the press and uh until bobby goodman who was handling the press uh the media said joe's down there and you know joe's gonna go and then ali says give me my comb and he gets himself together But later that night, Ali could barely move. He was, his body was beaten so hard, badly. Every every organ in his body had been pulverized. And Joe was down there dancing with the knockouts. He was singing and dancing. And so, anyway, you can draw from that what you want. But uh, I'll tell you, there were two winners that night in my view. and if you look at it another way there were two losers so yeah I
0: mean you can't if you watch that fight and you don't come away in love with Joe Frazier then you have no soul because yeah I, yeah all time not just one of the top one or two prize fighters ever to have lived going back 300 years but one of the most decent fundamentally kind people and one of the greatest athletes of the last thousand years and you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it was David Hauberstam who said it, but someone, or, or Thomas Hauser, who said that they were fighting for the championship of each other. Right? Yeah, it, yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yeah, I've yeah.
1: heard that. I, I think that was, uh, sort of Tom Hauser said that. I, I think so. But uh, it's true. Um, you know, um, to me, it was the greatest sporting event in in uh, of the last century. I agree. I agree and i agree uh, i wasn't at all of them but i know a fair amount about a fair a fair amount about a lot of them and to me just given everything that was involved you know um and the, the stature of the two men and where they were in their lives and um uh, but the tragedy is that they didn't just you know tear off the gloves uh and just uh hang up the gloves after after manila you know well that was that was the sad part of it all
0: Freddie pacheco thought that ali should have retired after the first Frazier fight and certainly after the manila fight he said to him organs don't recover from beatings like that it's not like getting calloused hands when you play guitar
1: well you know you're right uh and i was thinking i was musing today what if joe had retired after the first ali fight just think of how we would think of him today you know but that was not going to happen, <laughs> because right, boxing, was, boxing was what got Joe where he was in life, his station in life. He wasn't going to give that up. And what was he going to do? You know, he could have been a singer, I guess.
0: <laughs> but you know, with, I mean, at that point, unlike today, where there's four world champions in one world, right. it was only Joe Frazier. And so very few people get to have that designation you're the heavyweight champ, you're the toughest human being on the face of the earth. Oh, yeah. How can you give that up?
1: Yeah, there was a very uh, clear line to who was the the best. You know, the ring rankings had yet to be tarnished. (laughs) People still put a lot of credit into the ring rankings at that time. Um, You know, and people looked and that was an important barometer of who was who at that time. If you remember in the 60s, And even before then, of course, but 60s and 70s. So, yeah, I mean, uh, so what they achieved, and what Joe achieved came at a high cost, obviously, you know, um, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, we don't know the full extent of what happens when you have CTE. When you have that sort of brain damage, how it affects your behavior, uh, we do know that uh, some of the behavioral aspects of it are are very were alarming. Um, and there's no question Joe and Ali had that. Uh, whether you know uh, there are some that might want to debate it, but it's to me it's there's beyond no it's beyond debate. Um,
0: yeah, it's beyond debate because all fighters end up. It's not possible. Yes. to
1: do this to do it and end up without that. Yes, yes, and um, you know, uh, when they finally get around to, uh, uh, when they finally get a a way to judge the extent of brain damage before, uh, right now you can only judge it uh, in autopsy, you know, whether someone had CTE. But when they get to the point where they have a test for it, that's going to uh, uh be uh, create a sea change for the NFL and for boxing and a lot of these contact sports because it's my hunch that uh it's a lot more prevalent uh than people suspect uh particularly uh, uh with in youth sports and uh, you know you, you're just seeing um the beginning of the beginning of it at that time and and you see cases of you know uh uh, you see cases of players at 18 19 20 years old dying and uh uh, it it explains a lot of this aberrant behavior you know this extreme behavior impulsiveness uh drug use etc etc so um I don't know. We're, it, we're never going to see it, another era in boxing hmm. the way. Uh, that's the thing. You're not going to see boxing be anything close to what it was during the Ali Frazier years. It's right. It
0: was a niche.
1: a niche now. Right, right. I mean, everything has its season, right? Uh, to me, when I was doing uh, working as a sports writer. I never thought of it as the golden age of sports writing. But it when, when you look and see how it's evolved or devolved uh, over the last 15 years or so, you can say, well, geez, uh, that was the golden age. I mean, it's never gonna come back the way it was. And by that, I mean, you had columnists, every city had a couple of columnists and and the page counts were deep, and uh, the travel money was uh, was there to go do interesting stories. Uh, there was a great, you know, people could have careers as sports writers. You can't, I suppose you can be called, do something that's called sports writing, but it's nothing like it was then. You know, you today it's, you know, you're tweeting and everything's so fragmented. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to sound like an old shoe here, but the truth of the matter, I guess my point is everything has its time and, right. uh, and, you know, boxing had its time.
0: I know definitely And in and, and that era, you had the 69 Mets and 73, you had secretariat. Yeah. Secretariat came to Toronto to run at the Queen's plate. Sure. Era, I didn't want to go, and my father looked at me and said, "Secretary, it's the Muhammad Ali and Joe Lewis of horse racing. And yes, you live to regret this day for the rest of your life." And yeah. I did. I ha-
1: I do regret it because he said, "You'll never. There'll never be another horse like this." And yeah, and horse and horse racing is another example of a of a of a sport that's uh, that's uh, you know in steep decline. You know. Uh, um uh, so you know so what i wanted to do with Frazier is preserve him in that in the context of his times right and uh i think that um you know uh anyone that's interested in what it was like you know when Allie and joe fought they might find my book you did, know
0: did Frazier realized that he himself had millions of fans throughout the world that did he really understand how much he
1: meant to people how much people yes yes I think he did I think he did and I think he appreciated it tremendously I think he really did he he, he um, you know as I said earlier uh, he understood what it meant to be a champion and uh, in a city. And if you needed to find Joe Frazier, all you had to do was go up to North Broad Street and knock on the gym door, and he would be there. He would he would welcome you in, and uh, you know treat you like an old friend. Uh, and and that's how he was, you know. Uh, uh, see these fighters from those eras, these athletes, writ large, had there was no pretense about them the way you see today you see athletes today they have these uh uh, phallics of uh of uh, of of uh this entourage that's sort of sort of surrounding them and um you know they're they're very hard to get to even for the press they're hard to get to (laughs) but back then you know you could you could spend time and get to know these fighters. They would tell you you their stories. Uh, They enjoyed that piece of it. For the most part, there were some that were reluctant, but for the most part, uh, and sports writers were the storytellers uh, of that time. But that day's all gone. I mean, the athletes are making so much money and they're so much guarded, they're so well guarded by press, uh media relations people and and agents and so forth and so on that uh that you know we don't have that relationship with fighters the way we did you could feel like you knew joe frazier today do you feel like you really know who the top stars are in in boxing do you've do you have a sense of who they are as people i i would ask you this because you you're more yeah. involved in it than i am do you feel like you have a a textured view of who these guys are no
0: I I I, I know their names but no I mean when when I I'm 62 so when I was a kid you knew who all eight champions were in every division right and and I don't know if it's because I was Canadian or it was just me but how could you not love Joe Frazier he smiled to everyone he had a million dollars smile he he was he was kind to the he, he didn't dislike the people he fought he went to visit Chevallo in the hospital every day. after sure. his orbital bone and and they that was a friendship and a love they had for each other that never diminished. And and you know it brought me to tears at the Hall of Fame each year when all George would do when he got there, where's Joe? Where's Joe? And then he'd see him, and George would open his arms and hug him and just drown him in kisses. And Frazier was so happy to see him. And they would just be in their own world for the whole weekend they would just sit and talk to each other and laugh and giggle and it was great to see them be able to do that and 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 uh george when i asked him if, who was the tougher fight ali or frazier he said frazier because he said ali was magnificent but you couldn't hit frazier he was so quick and <laughs> he was losing so much he was impossible the time and he said if you watch yeah. the ali fights ali lighted fi- ali missed five times as many punches as he landed
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Frazier, that's right Frazier was so just- if you take frazier's career from 1969 to um, 1975 i mean they they were really careful how they managed him then they well, didn't the overexpose little- him because jeddy futch said with a fighter with a fighter joe's size you gotta keep a close eye on them because they could go at any time. So they were real careful about who, who they matched him with. Did um, he, what's that? Did he fight
0: his the rumor is he fought his whole career blind in one eye because of his diabetes?
1: No, he had it was it it was a gym injury, I understood it to be that he had okay. hurt his eye in a gym injury. Um no, he had uh, uh, his stablemate was Gypsy Joe Harris, who was blind in one eye. Right. So, um, and he was, uh, he ran afoul of the commissions and <laughs> he was finished. But, you know, Joe and, you know, or Gypsy were very close. Gypsy is a whole other story in himself. Because right. he, he was, when he came up in the 60s, he was bigger in Philadelphia than Joe was in the mid-60s. Because his... He was one of. He would wear the the long uh, white uh, minks and the and the cowboy hats and and he was a he was a real character and in the ring he was he had a million moves you know and uh, and it was tragic to see his career end the way it did. Um. Joe. Uh,
0: Didn't Joe counsel him for a while and try yeah, to? Yeah. Yeah. And- uh,
1: yeah joe came back from uh this i guess was in the 80s and Joe had came come back from uh, out of town with some fighters and he gets shows back up at the gym and uh gypsy's sleeping on the gym steps on the, on the on the little slab of concrete in front of the front door and um joe says what are you doing he said uh you know uh gypsy said he's you know just broke he had no money he was joe brought him in gave him a shower gave him some clothes got him some food and gave him a job in the gym but you know gypsy i think was kind of bitter that joe uh ended up making a lot of money in the game and and he didn't so you know it's all laid out in the book the relationship and yeah you laid out good.
0: perfectly in the book and of course as you well know 99 percent of all fighters don't make any money it's only the elite oh, yeah. like joe that
1: make good money at it that's that's right that's right uh and you know uh ali uh uh you wonder um see i'm not real familiar with what his you know uh what his situation was uh, financially but he got some major endorsement deals after his his uh his fighting career
0: right Ali it made fits. more more money after because he signed a deal I think for 250 or 300 million to license his image and his name because they right. you know, anyone could put out a Muhammad Ali t-shirt or mug so I think he signed with ICM or IGM or some big company and they paid Ali 250 300 million and as a result I know in Toronto but every city in the world all these alley things started to disappear there were only one or two sites you could buy it from
1: that were licensed right right so, so see joe didn't uh wasn't so fortunate uh, so far as i know um you, do you think joe
0: lost his desire to fight after he beat ali the first time
1: his desire mm-hmm. um well I think he had reached the peak and once you're at the peak uh it's very hard uh uh to sustain the kind of uh, uh tenacity that you need to to stay there you know um I think that they w- early was uh, the the thought was that they would have a quick rematch, you know. And it makes it would have made sense, right? To have a quick rematch the next year, but uh the numbers didn't fall in Joe's favor. He wanted uh more than Ali. And I think that the numbers were uh tilted in Ali's favor. And Joe resented that. With good right? reason. So what's that? Yeah. With, with good right. reason, yeah. Right, right. Well, he felt Joe felt that Ali was uh uh, in much the same way that uh, uh, Donald Trump has not accepted the, uh, the results of the 2020 election. Right. Uh, Ali uh, started putting out a lot of uh, chatter after, the, after he lost the first fight, that the, that the judges were racist, and uh, uh, that there was all sorts of uh, excuses for him losing the fight. He'd say that out of one side of his mouth, and the other side of the mouth, he would talk about, you know, he would praise Joe as a fighter. So it was hard to know, you know, it wasn't exactly, Ali did not go down easily, put it that way.
0: No, I mean, and he, he treated him horribly at times.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was even a, there was a, a doctor in Britain, I think, who was putting out the, uh, put out a story that after the fight that Ali looked like he had been drugged. Somebody had put some drugs into his water bottle between rounds. Totally unfounded, total bunch of crap. But, uh, you know, it made the story made its rounds in the papers over here. And so Joe's walking down uh, Broad Street one day, and he comes upon a bunch of kids coming the other way, you know, school age kids, and uh, who, and uh, one of the kids says my daddy says uh you drug you drugged ali and you beat him by drugging him and joe said he leaned down to the kid got on his knee and he said i only uh the only this is the he showed him he made a fist with his left hand and he said i drug him with this that was how i drugged him Anyway, or, well, yeah. or words of that effect. Anyway, the truth of the matter was I think Joe uh resented the fact that his uh, achievement had been uh basically uh undermined by this sort of nonsense.
0: Especially after he, he kicked his ass for 15 rounds <laughs> oh, God. and then put him on the mat. I mean, you can't do it any more emphatic than he did. No, no. No. I mean, there was, there was a no doubter. But, you know, Mike, I have a question for you. No one's been able to answer this. I asked Thomas Hauser and Randy Roberts and other people's esteemed authors, such as yourself, this question, but they said it's an interesting theory. My theory was Ali thought, is it possible Ali thought, because I'm making a social stand, not only by not going in the army, but for civil rights for Black people, that no other black fighter, especially heavyweight, should be going after a title that belongs to me. Did, did you think that actually happened to Ali, or or is that just overstating it? That Ali, uh, that Ali and- resented Joe because he he had the temerity to try to make a living as a black man as a fighter and go after the title when Ali said, "Hey, that's
1: my title. You should support me." no i don't i don't think that's the first i've really heard of that i don't really think that that was a factor i think i think that uh early on ali cultivated joe as the uh as his foil and uh in fact they would ride around philadelphia hatching up their plans you know back in 67 and 66 67 when ali would come to town and Ali said, he looked, he said, I look at Joe Frazier and I see $10 million. So Ali knew, um, he had a real eye for the, the Eagle as it were, you know, he knew where he could sense that there was a, that Joe was the sort of opponent that he, that the two of them could, you know, cut up some pretty big bread, you know, and, um, so no i i don't think he 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 uh uh uh, what's the word uh resented resented uh joe uh uh, going after you know making a living um i think that he was trying to position himself and the two of them in a place where they would have that that big big payday and they did they had it you know um it's
0: interesting. Yeah. Sorry. It's yeah. interesting when you look at him calling uh, Terrell and Uncle Tom and calling Joe Frazier the white man's champion. When in fact, you know, Ali grew up in the m- black middle class in Kentucky, and Frazier grew up dirt poor. Yeah. And Ali had white backers of the Louisville sponsoring group. Yeah. Same yeah. as same as Frazier had white backers. I mean, everything
1: he accused Frazier of, Ali had done himself well you know if you in case you haven't been paying attention projection is a great uh, <laughs> uh a great tool of the american uh uh people you know i mean right. if i say something it's probably a projection of actually who what i'm doing or what i'm saying um you know but ali was it was all that was all gorgeous george stuff you know uh the pro wrestler who Ali sort of uh, cribbed his notes from uh, back in the 60s. You know, Gorgeous George was, you know, kind of like a a dandy with these ringlets and the perfume there, and and he he would insult his opponents and what have you. Ali felt that it's, you know, I guess you could boil down his point of view, you know, uh, it's good to be loved, it's even better to be hated you know he wanted to it's, put he wanted to put butts in the seats you know that's it you yeah. know and he was a master promoter master promoter he he, said he, once, he was a he was a far better promoter than he was a fighter and he was a great fighter i mean right hank
0: kaplan the late hank kaplan
1: i'm sure you knew told
0: me that after he'd been assigned him when he was cast as Clay to be his pr guy he said about five days later we called angelo and said you're paying me for nothing <laughs> yeah right yeah. all you got to say to him is hey how's your morning going yeah. and he said he's off for two hours yeah so, it's an interesting
1: thing about ali when you were with him uh individually he was a totally different person than he was when he had a had a uh a crowd of more than two or three you know uh he had that uh, he had a real canny sense for when the red light went on, you know, and, uh, when the cameras were trained on him or the night where the notebooks came out. Um, but my dad who was with him through, uh, all his big fights in the sixties and seventies and, you know, made the observation that he would sort of retreat into these, you know, deep silences, you know, when, when you had him alone, you know, he wasn't, uh, uh, he definitely had an off button you know interesting
0: yeah he it, it's it's fascinating that um, the dynamic i mean i don't know if they ever really became friends i read in the sports illustrated article that they met before an nba all-star game and when they made peace because of marvis trying to do
1: this and they made yeah well that him. was the end of the end of my book right uh, and um you know i had wanted to ask the question uh, or answer the question did did uh, joe carry his animus towards ali to his grave did he uh did he ever get his get uh, come to terms with it and my answer is that he did um although people will dispute that uh people that knew joe and what have you but i think that he did you know i think that his relationship with Ali sort of waxed and waned over the years. He was never quite sure what Ali had up his sleeve. He could never be really quite, you know. Joe was a, a kind-hearted man who understood that outside of the rings, fighters sort of shared this fraternal relationship. That they uh, they 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 competed inside the ring, but outside of the ring, they were uh, there was a brotherhood. And he'd never underst- he never understood. He never understood why Ali would go into all this, this uh, nonsense that he did about, you know, ratcheting up this hate speech and a lot of this, this anger um, that he, that he's he sort of pulled. You know, well, he- all the fans, all the fans were uh, he, he he stoked a lot of, a lot of animosity towards Frazier. You know, a lot of. He heard a lot of epithets at Fraser, and he could never He's quite terrible. understood that. But, but my thing is that um, it evolved to the point where Allie came to uh, Philadelphia for the NBA All Star game for an appearance there, and Allie's wife invited Joe and Marvis to come up to, for dinner to his suite and uh i won't spoil it for your audience but i lay that out at the end of the book that encounter and after you're done reading that i defy you to 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 uh conclude that there was anything but profound love between the two of them
0: yeah that had me in tears yeah in that part i know in particular you know george cavallo you know that his wife committed suicide he lost his. i did yeah
1: sure oh two
0: yeah sons to drug overdose and a granddaughter to cancer and i know when that happened frazier was always the first guy to call him and come up and just be with him
1: right i had, i knew that yeah i knew that and uh um uh, i think one of george's sons uh send me a, uh, an email uh, talking about how joe stepped up during those times and uh quite you know but that's joe you know that's joe um uh you know there was a lot to like about joe
0: a lot yeah like i mean about. he was when i was young he was my hero it's this this was the every man the great guy
1: yeah and- yeah
0: Ali had, I think, admitted in, in subtle ways, and not so subtle ways later on, that what he was doing before, he was young, he didn't know better, and he was preaching this racist diatribe from the Nation of Islam. But when you look at Ali later, Ali didn't really dislike white people. He He, he had a tremendous fear of what would happen, based on what happened to Malcolm X, if he left. But after Elijah Muhammad, Ali couldn't leave quick enough.
1: Oh, sure. So he can... Yeah, he, he evolved, Ali, you know, he evolved into a, a different, you know, uh, as as human beings do, you know, right. that's, what, that's what the life's journey is about, you know, to sort of begin one place and to go and to find your way to something else. And I think Ali uh, became a deeply spiritual man. I think to a great degree he regretted. Um I think he regretted how uh harsh it became, in some of his uh remarks with about Frazier, how harsh he had been. But I think that uh what bothered him most deeply was that Joe was so hurt by it uh that and how could you not be considering some of the things were, that were said
0: and but also, for that joe supported but, him when he was in exile joe paid for well his
1: to go to school he, he gave him money bought him groceries pay, paid his mortgage right. well i don't want to overstate that he didn't he he lent him some money it wasn't anything that was that could that was sustainable for ali i mean he helped him out you know you know he duked him some money but that was about it but beyond that beyond that he um um
0: didn't I uh, lost my train of thought but sorry, I, go didn't, ahead didn't Fraser say to him you know can you tone it down my kids are getting bullied at school
1: oh yeah yeah i don't know whether he said that to he directed that at ali he might have, but I don't. I don't get that. I think that it got back to Ali that 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 Joe was pissed about that. See, Ali had, or Joe and Ali had writers going back and forth between the two of them, sort of couriers carrying information and so forth. So, you know, the the best writers had relationships with both of them, so they would. Joe said this, and they would take it back to Ali. Ali would say this, and they would take it back to Joe that kind of thing. They all had spies in each other's camps. That was always it. always enjoyed reading about that, the, the various spies that was passing on information th- between the camps. Uh, you don't have that today, right? You don't have, right. I mean, remember back in the day there was, you'd have a fight camp and the writers would come two, three weeks ahead of time, you know, write stories out of the camps, you know? It, it would build the fight night. And these there was a were whole great writers. These are, you know, people were waiting for these articles to come out. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. But you don't have that today. No. There's a big fight. There's a big fight, and then it, uh, it just sort of happens. It's... And then it's forgotten.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating. I know in Toronto, but it happens everywhere where, regardless of what a writer says, um, you can go to the newspapers um or or radio stations or tv station i mean in canada there are except for a specific sports that canada's version of espn local news doesn't have sports casters anymore they've got rid of that and so many of the you know it's basically in canada it's owned by two companies bell canada, right. and rogers and they're getting rid of most of their sports and when you would say to people that run it there or at the papers or on radio you know here are the numbers and and boxing the live gate and the pay-per-view is doing way better than M- mma and they would say no one cares no one likes boxing it doesn't count
1: mm-hmm. even, even yeah. you're telling them otherwise well yeah everybody all the nuance is gone mm-hmm. from sports in my view today it's all hard numbers it's all the it's all about the, the 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 money um and it and the money has changed everything about yeah, it's, how it's outrageous not, and not just boxing but all sports well you know in, in baseball for instance in baseball for instance pitchers can't go beyond five innings because you know they're worried about them throwing too many pitches and Well, but nobody really sits down and and tells you that back in the 60s, you know, pitchers were pitching 300 innings and had long careers.
0: I remember in the 60s watching a game between Bob Gibson, the Cardinals, and Ferguson Jenkins from the Cubs, and I went 14 innings, and and there was no relief pitcher, and Jenkins
1: lost. Yeah. That would never happen today. Today they today that would be front page news, you know. I mean, yeah, but they, I, people couldn't believe it yeah, today.
0: But I, I remember when Frazier beat Jim Ellis; it was front page news on well. the Toronto Star. There was a huge picture. Joe Frazier, yeah. undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. There is no more doubt. And yeah. Oh and, yeah. And this was uh, like, this was more than a sports story. And when Ali fought Webner. There's a big photo the next day of Webner set standing on his foot yeah, right. pushing him and it said the champ was right. It wasn't a knockdown. But but you know, you could have a Tyson Fury fight, Floyd Mayweather, Pacquiao. You won't see it in any newspaper here. When I call them, there only one newspaper in Canada carries it. The other ones don't. They yeah, it's all nobody it's cares. Vanished. It's and, vanished. And when I worked for Lennox Lewis. I would speak to various national and local newspapers and they would say, Yeah, we just cover hockey because of the Raptors and the Blue Jay. We cover hockey, basketball, and baseball. That's it. Yeah. That's, anything it. Else.
1: that's it. And now they barely do that.
0: Yeah. And, and you know. we were talking about the money. So as you you know, Vladimir Guerrero's not having a good season, but every right. day in the paper they're saying. He's still going to ask for 50 million yeah a season and you're thinking you know you couldn't pay a mickey mantle what he's worth today or a jackie robinson or a bob gibson and you look at what mayweather and pacquiao got well according to joe's accomplishments you know i mean he was worth that if, if he was around today you'd have to be paying him hundreds of millions of fight
1: what's what's insidious in my, to me, what's most insidious is how now in the major sports, the money is now flowing from gambling. Uh, yeah. And this is this is a bad piece of business, in my view. I agree. Uh, this is um, uh, basically uh you know, creating chaos. Mm-hmm. They're kind of creating chaos in people's lives, preying on the dopamine fix that gambling gives, these, gives people. It is addictive. It does ruin families. It does lead to all sorts of problems. And yet sports is very willing to overlook that and see beyond that and take the money anyway. It's incredible
0: because gambling was always an entry for the mob. And yeah, I, I was able to, I have a book coming out soon about boxing's greatest controversies, but I was able to trace to 1772, the very first um, unequivocal fixed fight in boxing in, oh. England, in England. And the, they were caught doing it, but gamblers were involved. One guy was paid to lose. And the fans were stupid. The odds changed so quickly before the fight, and fans who bet money. And this was 1700s. These weren't upper class. There was some aristocracy there, but these were commoners who made almost nothing. And then all of a sudden, they're hearing, "I got ripped off. This wasn't yeah. on the level." And you know, it's a big riot. And I agree with you. Anytime you bring gambling into, I mean, they kicked
1: Pete Rose out for that. now and now they're allowing it it's the wrong now it's the systematic it's now but now it used to be the the purview of uh organized crime and and what have you i for many years but now it's systematic it's on your phone you can tap in a bet on just about anything at any time uh it's so fluid you have your account and you just keep it's just and they give you like heroin dealers they give you a hit you know they give you two thousand dollars to get you hooked into it I, it's it's really it's it's so ugly i can't even begin to uh describe to you how disgusting i think it is well I, uh, I, I, mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's just uh terrible
0: I have to tell you, when I bet money when Mike Rossman beat Victor Glinditz for the light heavyweight title. Right. And I doubled the bet in the rematch when Rossman lost. And I was so upset. Right. And I said to Dundee, I thought it was a sure thing. And he said, Son, there's no such thing as a sure thing. That's why yeah. it's called
1: gambling. That's right. That's and, right.
0: But- and today, when people, I mean, you get this undoubtedly all the time people say who should i bet on and when it comes to boxing i say boxing is totally corrupt there's still mob or criminal element in it you know you doesn't matter who you bet on it may not yeah. be the way it should anyways
1: yeah it's i guess though now it's it's become a broader thing you know mm-hmm. uh, uh the nfl and uh, on one hand they sanctimonious talk sanctimoniously say that uh they're against gambling by their players and what have you baseball is even worse they uh uh they whipped uh pete rose like he's a redheaded stepchild for the last 30 years and uh and yet on the other hand they turn around and they get involved with they they set up their whole they have all this cash coming in now from uh, gambling enterprises so you tell me um uh, uh how hypocritical that is. Um but you know uh these big contracts I'd like to know where the ceiling is because everything has a ceiling. Right, right. Where is the ceiling?
0: Well, I, you know, I know
1: yeah,
0: I know that I mean a friend of mine who was from here, Norm McDonald, the comedian, who you probably yeah. Can- well, he he had a gambling problem. So he was banned from casinos and there was a lot of guys here he owed money to that he lost and he it was a sickness and he, yeah. he admitted it. But if you're standing with him, you know, the next car is gonna be a Chevy. And I would say, I don't bet, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. And he'd yeah. do this with everyone and he would make great money and he would lose it. And it's it's a sorry state the way some sports are like that now.
1: It's, it's the dopamine rush. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a drug.
0: It's yeah, a there's... drug.
1: Chemicals are released in your brain when you when you bet and win and when you bet and lose. It's a constant uh, 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 cycle of well, uh, excitement and disappointment, despair, yeah. happiness. It yeah. is not uh, they are preying on people. There, there was a, sport. Sports is preying on people.
0: Yes, there There was a hockey player named Evander Kane for the Edmonton Oilers. Who declared bankruptcy. His wife was saying, asked his wife, he made over 300 million and he's still playing. How does he have enough money? And she said, he's up all night gambling in all the different sites.
1: Oh, he I'm not he, surprised. He said, you know, was, Lou, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg yet. On all the, the these stories that are out there, the devastation that's out there. We, I mean, the times that a New York Times did a very interesting series about six months ago or so on this whole issue, and that was scary in itself. But that only scratched the surface. I mean, uh, the money that's that's being hauled in out of people's bank accounts to fuel the sports. And then forget about that for a minute. And on the other hand, these sports organizations are holding up uh, the local uh, state governments and city governments for handouts to build stadiums of 600 million, 800 million. And it's corporate welfare is what it is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but, but the taxpayer does not get any hand, get any, uh, any money flowing back to them, you know, out well, of these investments. There's a story you, you may have read about.
0: It, it broke all across Canada and in the States and some places. The Toronto Blue Jays are owned by a corporation Rogers. So Rogers, right. Rogers has a monopoly here on, on uh, the Internet, home telephone and cable TV. The right part of canada world you can't do that but the government of justin trudeau said it's all right yeah so they still continue so what they're doing is they're remodeling the skydome they're a trillion dollar organization and Jeez. they've said there's there's people that own tickets and have owned it since they played an exhibition stadium another stadium years ago in 76 but these people that own the tickets are the children of sports writers for various toronto newspapers <laughs> They've paid every increase. And so this year they're paying 30, between I guess 30 and 50,000 or more for season tickets. Jesus. They got a letter from the Blue Jays saying because your seat's going to be moved to left because of renovations. So we're going to need 125,000 extra each year, but we want you to pay it all at once. So in the next two weeks, you're going to have to pay it 375,000. Keep they might as well,
1: as well wear a. They might as well uh, uh, wear a mask.
0: Yeah, I mean, if they the just gun, absolutely, if they, you're right. That's bang on. If they had a gun, they couldn't have robbed them any better. So these people went to the newspaper, and the newspaper asked the baseball team and Rogers, "You said that you don't need government help to do this. You could. You have the money to fund the renovation,
1: but you're right. making the
0: plans. Do it." and their attitude is, it's not a court of law. I don't have to answer
1: questions like that. I can do what I want. Yeah, I'm- there you go. See, so that's what happens when your newspapers, and this is across America, when they when they are, are basically drained of all its resources, uh, pages and, uh, and staff, when you take them out of the picture, out of the game, these corporations, and specifically in sports, are are just uh they run wild they run wild you know uh,
0: leaving the mafia alone to to govern themselves it's it's
1: it's disgusting uh and i'll tell you um so you know in 2025 the thrill in manila will that'll be its 50th anniversary and it's astonishing to me that how the world has changed since then how, how, and how, uh, how basically sports has become so mundane. Uh, you know, it used to be that big events like a fight or a, a baseball game, you'd see a baseball the game of the week on Saturday in baseball. You'd look forward to it because that's the only game you were going to see that week. And the fight, you get the advance reporting, you know, you read about it in the papers. You know, this camp says this, the other camp says that. You know, what's going to happen? You talk to your friends. It would build. You know, football was every Sunday. You'd sort of look forward to it. It's still every Sunday. But now it's Thursday. And now it's Monday. Uh, So it's three days a week. And it wouldn't surprise me if it went to a fourth day a week at some point uh and there's more games and every game can be seen at any time you can turn on mlb and get every game that's going on so my point is that this has drained the romance out of sports yeah out of sports that nothing is is as uh what's the word uh, special, as it once was, when it comes to sporting events.
0: The greatest baseball game I ever saw, including when Joe Carter hit the home run for the Blue Jays to win the World Series. Right. I'll never forget sitting with my father, and my uncles, and cousins watching Carlton Fisk will the home run and to beat the Reds. That was the oh sure baseball game I ever saw in my life. Oh sure. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Every inning, you were standing up cheering oh yeah
1: absolutely um
0: you know and same so thrill in manila i i i, I want to thrill in manila maple leaf garden and my friend's father took us he was vice president of panasonic so we had a booth but in right. the booth, you couldn't see out the window so we're watching it and around the 11th round mark he actually said well boys it's a late night i gotta get you home <laughs> I, started, I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not leaving. There's no way I'm damn well leaving. And he looked at me like, excuse me? I said, I'll take the subway home. And and he said, you're 15. I said, I don't care. I'm not leaving. And so we, we stood out in the stands and we watched it with our, like everyone else in the gardens. We just had our head on our hands going, how is this going to end? I mean, Frazier's still coming after him.
1: Yeah. Yeah 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 it's astonishing you know it's uh you know in doing my book one of the one of the great pleasures of doing my book i should i should say was that i got to go back and read all the sports reporting that was done in the 60s yeah in the 60s and 70s the columnists and what have you um and um you really it was such a huge help to me, writing the book, because I got a sense of really what was going on in, in the camps and the fighters' heads. But can you imagine someone writing a book about, I don't know, pick a star from today, uh, Floyd Mayweather, for instance, or any other athlete. Future biographers are going to have nothing to draw on. You know, there's, right. there's these guys are not accessible uh it's a very one-dimensional picture that people are going to be uh be presented with I think so I don't know i uh I guess you had to be there right
0: <laughs> yeah what well, i was in the I was lucky to be in the movie Cinderella man and spent all that time with angelo oh and so no was on set I got to speak to him but I, I really mm-hmm. love speaking with bud Schulbert oh no, sure and bud was there when dempsey fought willard and he said his hands weren't wrapped because i was in the dressing room with my father who was the head of paramount pictures we he knew Dempsey, and he said oh yeah he said willard's trainer walter moynihan was there and said the wraps are kosher and he said you see him walking in the ring with his wraps so uh-huh. he said it, it it was great but he, he said himself only dan parker was the only other guy that spoke out against the mob in the 50s but he said back then new york and i'm sure philly new york had like 40 dailies so you could read jimmy cannon oh know, sure damon running runyon much earlier and all these fantastic writers and to me it's just the the, the level like in your book it's it, it it's just brilliant you don't see sports writing like that today
1: this was well, thank art. thank you yeah, thank you. No,
0: I mean, your book was art. You don't see that today.
1: Thank you. That's very kind of you. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you, yourself and I mean, there they won't be anyone like those guys, yourself, your father, anyone else around again. It just doesn't happen that you know, you'll see such a wealth of sport. Shirley Povich
1: was another one. Yeah, I know. I know all the papers. When we lived in New York in the mid-60s, when I was a little boy across the street they uh there was a newsstand and on Sunday morning there'd be twelve papers, New York papers stacked up. Wow. You know, can you imagine that? Just uh just uh an astonishing time, really. And I my, get, my, go ahead. Well, my father's favorite
0: fighter as a kid was um Al Bummy Davis. Yeah, Ronald. Ron Ross wrote a book on him, the lightweight that was killed in a in a saloon robbery. Right. But in Toronto, there was just one sentence: "Jew fighter killed." In New York, <laughs> that was it. So <laughs> he called his relatives in New York, and they sent up like twenty papers, and they all had these long page articles about what really happened. Oh
1: wow! And yeah. he said
0: it was it was heartbreaking, but it gave you the whole story. It gave you the truth.
1: Ah, uh, I see. I see
0: and he said you know now these days it just you know there not there's no headlines even with boxing i know or, or whatever they they can't be bothered they look down on sports writing they don't look at it and they don't look at the great writers such as yourself hemingway and other people Bernard shaw you know george
1: Bernard Shaw, and other people who wrote about
0: it
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah well you know it's a uh one of my goals is to put together uh, my father's boxing pieces uh in time for the twenty fiftieth anniversary of the throw of Manila. so at That'd least at least preserve just his boxing pieces he wrote about many other things uh, and I did publish a book of uh his uh, magazine work It's called Great Men Die Twice, which has some I, boxing
0: I just- into it. I read that the other night in a book I have by George, I think, called The Big Fights.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I
0: read that article, Great Man Died Twice. It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah.
1: So uh, my goal is to uh, to put that out in a few years, um, just, as, just as a marker that there was a sport called boxing and there was some, you know, marvelous uh, writing about it. And uh you know, so also
0: the writing, the humor in the writing, you know, yeah. was was great. I, I I don't know if it was Jimmy Cannon who said about Henry Cooper and Ali, sleep befell Henry Cooper as it must befall all British heavyweights midway through the Yeah. And I think Cannon also wrote with George Chivallo that uh, when he when he fought Frazier that he became indignant when a punch missed him.
1: <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny that's pretty and funny
0: just brilliant writing all the way around and, and boxing and baseball
1: yeah i know i know the times they have changed
0: yeah and the the younger guys coming up a lot of them you just it, it just isn't there they don't have the passion or the background that these guys had or the skill
1: well, they it's don't have the athletes. well they don't have the uh, the uh, the venue to write uh, this word That's there's true. nowhere to write anymore where's where are they gonna write right. I'd hate to be a young writer today he I don't know what I'd do. I don't know how you can make a living. It's not
0: easy and I'm not young you know? <laughs> and, and I, I know from you know with your father I mean as you know, people would stand there and wait for his thing to come out. And oh, they, sure. Oh, yeah. They'd wait and say, is it out yet? I want to read Mark Cramp. Yeah. You know? And they'd line up. And so it doesn't... I don't know anyone lining up for newspapers
1: anymore. No, uh, no, no. It's just... Uh, most of them are zombie papers, you know? They're just sort of... Yeah. You are just sort of... You know, it's a sad thing.
0: Well, I, I just want to say, first of all, the. Not only is the book brilliant, but the amount of people you have, magnificent people here, Jonathan Ike, Joyce Carol Oates, who loved the book, John Julian, who co-wrote a book with uh, George Kimball. Yes. And the great George Kimball and Mike Leahy. And the, the that's a wonderful picture. But I, I love the picture of him with his mother and sitting on the porch, and also the picture of him grabbing uh a valley grabbing his jacket <laughs> frazier, was, frazier was really well dressed he was a real sport yeah know, When he was dressed to the nines
1: yeah yeah he was a uh at that time uh i think stan Hawkman, who wrote for the daily news for many years philly daily news uh said that uh, the joe had a doorman like politeness you know which was well said he was he was um he was a, um, a very clean cut guy, you know? Yeah. So,
0: uh, when I I saw him in the bar, he seemed to be, I don't know if he was on edge or whatever, but the minute Chevala walked in, you could see all that, if it was tension, whatever just drown away. As I said, both their arms went out. Like,
2: here's a guy,
0: this is my brother. I don't have to fear him. And when he would call, um, uh, you know, he would call George's house every day, you know? So is, uh, you know, this is, this is Joe from, from Philadelphia calling Shivalo in T.O. <laughs> and they all knew it was him. And, and, you know, they, his son told me they would speak for hours. And was yeah. like, Dad, you're supposed to take us to the park. Uh, and <laughs> And his son would say the same stuff every day. Right. That's how, but we're friends. That's what friends do.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I've re- I've read a lot about George Chivalo over the years. Uh, I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but he was uh, certainly someone I admired. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, he he um he he lucked out because when Frazier broke his orbital bone, the surgery to save the eye didn't exist in Canada is that right yeah he said it, it because he had it in new york his eye was safe if it was in canada they would have he would have lost the eye
1: geez that was a fierce beating
0: it was a tremendous beating yeah he said he'd never been hit like that he said foreman hit me and it didn't come close to that and what did
1: what did you know, uh george say that it was like bitty it was like being hit by someone with four hands
0: yeah it was like a gang attacking him <laughs>
1: yeah. you know just
0: he said it's like his head felt like a speed bat. but he said fraser Jeez. was not only strong he hit his left hook well and he said the power he generated and it was just so quick he said he never yeah. got credit for the hand speed that he had yeah
1: yeah and he said well it's know, obvious Yeah, his, his hand speed was terrific
0: and he said i i'm two less than two feet from him and i can't land a punch he won't stop moving from side to side and bobbing and weaving He said he just you can't get him he said, "I was surprised when Foreman beat him because Joe, Joe was not an easy guy to tag."
1: You know? Yeah, well, the first fight, Joe was not. Uh, his head wasn't in the game down in Jamaica. Right. You know, he wasn't. Uh, he didn't take. First of all, first of all, he brought uh, his whole family down, and there was a it was a party atmosphere. And, uh Joe was not uh he was he was sparring with Ken Norton and Norton was um not yet he had not yet emerged on the national scene he had not yet beaten uh, Ali. um Ali broke his jaw but Eddie futch uh you know uh Norton went to Eddie futch and said you know he's not a he's he's off he's a few seconds off or a split second off and Futch had to lay ken off, norton off from sparring so joe wouldn't lose confidence so he was he was just not uh on his game uh he had diminished by the time he fought foreman and uh you know physically he was not uh uh you know, he was Forbin was much bigger. You know, it was going to be a tough night for him, I think, under any circumstances. But given the shape he was in, I think it was, you know, it wasn't going to happen.
0: Well, there, you know, Angelo was doing the color commentary, and he he reamed out Arthur McCanty after, and he said, "You trying to get the man killed?" Yeah, you should have stopped it because he kept getting up. So, what he gets getting up is Joe Frazier. You know, you could run a tank at him, he's going to get up. That's not the yeah. point, it was enough. Yeah, and same as you know, Angelo and I know Yank Durham both hated Tony Perez.
1: Mm. I mean,
0: Ali, like you said in the book over 100 times, kept pushing Joe's head down, and Perez didn't. Right i know oh and that that's not you know you get warned for that and you lose a point Perez did nothing not once
1: that's right that could have ch- the way a different referee could have changed that whole fight mm-hmm. could have turned that whole fight around plus it was 12 rounds the second fight right so right. i and think that yeah
0: and the thrill in manila when he tried to do it padilla would knock his arm around yeah so it's it's. I mean, it, as you as your wonderful book says, and as you've said, there'll never be another fight like that. There'll never be another era like that because yeah. it captured the whole world. The entire yes. planet was was focused on that one fight.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was. It was really something. You know, I was glad that I was honored to have a chance to to write about it. Honestly. I know, uh, so, uh, it really was a, a special moment in time.
0: I listen, I just want to say thank you so much. It's, it's been sure, a, it's been a pleasure really... having you on. I want to have you on again when you bring out the other book. Mm-hmm. If your father is writing, I'd like to have okay. you on again. Every <laughs> and the book is available. Where can people buy the book? Uh, on Amazon,
1: uh, Amazon, uh, uh the any of the, um, uh, uh, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you contact me, I'll, you can buy a copy and I'll sign it. You know, you can oh, that's wonderful. reach me on my, uh, website. Um, so, you know, it's
0: what is your website? What is, What's
1: the name? Um, uh, how can I- it's, uh, uh, www Okay. It's simple enough. And, um, you know, and i'm on facebook you can you can reach me through there most people seem to reach me through facebook so um uh so you know there's numerous places the book could be purchased and i'd sure be happy if you did
0: yes i gotta tell you when i saw it in the bookstore here i walked by it and then went wait a minute i walked back And my wife said, you know, you're going to buy it. So (laughs) don't look at the price. Just get it and buy it. I'm glad you
1: could find it up there.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's still, it's still, we have Indigos and Chapter up here. Same company. And so this is in all the stores.
1: Oh, great. uh, That's great.
0: If you can can find it, I mean, it's usually sold out, but if you can find it.
1: Well, that's great to hear. I'm glad people are finding the book because I think Joe, Joe is a worthy, A worthy uh subject to read about i think to write and read about
0: and you do it so beautifully and like yourself joe was a true gentleman and he to me he defined the term world champion he did he was the champion of everyone regardless of race creed color gender he liked everyone and i'm glad you said he knew how 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 loved he was oh yeah so many
1: people Yes he did. He certainly did.
0: Because you know, even today when you see fighters fighting in any division, he's a bit like Joe Frazier and I always think no one was like Joe Frazier. <laughs> no
1: one had that level of skill and talent. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was uh I was grateful to have a, had a chance to have met Joe and gotten to know Joe. It was it was really uh really something.
0: That must have been incredible okay i mean a, a living legend one of the all-time great champs yep
1: he certainly was
0: you know well i want to say thank you again for being on and we'd love to have you on again soon and it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and hopefully we will we'll see you again soon
1: okay take care lou
0: you too mark thank you so much okay bye Okay, oh